Let's open our Bibles, men, tonight to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 18. What to wear to the war. What to wear to the war. We'll be looking at the armor of God here tonight. We're in chapter 8 of our tracking through the strategy of Satan by Warren Wiersbe. Tonight, chapter 8, what to wear to the war. Well, our text will be there in Ephesians chapter 6. I have some handouts here. I'm going to go ahead and uh, ask Brother Barney and a couple of the brothers to hand them out for me, if you wouldn't mind. Just put those up. It's believed that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians while he was in a Roman prison. So you can imagine that he would see Roman guards on a regular basis. He would see centurions, men, you know, dressed in the Roman armor. And what I've handed out there is just something of a, of a look at the Roman armor of that day. And you can see how it probably uh, became something of a practical visual for the Apostle Paul in writing to the church in Ephesus speaking to them about spiritual things, but very much aware that the spiritual life is a battle and that there are spiritual forces at work. Though they are not seen with the natural eye, they are surely real and true. And God has given us spiritual equipment to defend ourselves against these spiritual forces. Now, without that spiritual equipment you are completely helpless against spiritual attacks. These are spiritual forces. First of all, you can't see them. Second of all, they're they're, they're stronger and more powerful than we are as natural men. So apart from God equipping us and strengthening us spiritually, we have absolutely no chance of any kind of victory against spiritual forces. So that's how important these these pieces of armor become to the believer. They are life and death. But the good news is we have them. God has given them to us. Paul said in another place that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful. And that's what we want to look at tonight. We need, if we're going to do spiritual battle, guys, we're going to have to have spiritual armor and spiritual weapons. And let's pray and get get started tonight in our study. Father, we thank you once again for this opportunity to study together. Tonight we'll be looking, Lord, at the the armor that you have equipped us with as believers. Lord, the spiritual battle is real, but it is not meant to intimidate or scare us because you have given us all that we need in terms of weapons and warfare and armor. And you have captained the victory for us already in Christ. So tonight, Lord, as we look, may this serve as insightful. May it be an encouragement, Lord. And may we as men step up to the battle. Lord, there is a battle. There is a battle raging for the souls of men, for our families, for our homes, for our churches, for our schools, for our nation. And Lord, we pray that you would give us, as men in this day, and you've destined us to be living here in this time, that we would be equipped 
spiritually speaking, to do what you've called us to do. We ask that you'd speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Six weapons, or I should say six pieces of armor will be identified here for us tonight. The girdle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Let's read the text and then we'll come back through and pick each of these items up. Follow with me if you would. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. It really is a call to battle, and it is serious business in in this language. I mean, I read verse 12 there. And it sounds a little intimidating. Listen to again, verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but here's what's against us. Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's a little intimidating to think that those are the forces amassed against us, against the work of God, the kingdom of God, the men of God. So... Again, not to scare you, because God has given us victory and God has given us all that we need. But imagine, imagine one of our Marines going out into the hostile climate of Afghanistan, and I'm not talking about the weather. Imagine him going out there in just khaki shorts and a t-shirt with no weapons, no armor, no boots, no ammunition, no equipment. He would be a sitting duck. He'd be helpless against the kind of enemy that's coming against him. And so it, it's, it's important, again, not to, to be fearful, but definitely to be watchful. The girdle of truth. That's the first item on the list of six. The girdle of truth. Girding up your waist with truth. We see that in the first part of verse 14. Now, the girdle in the, in the Roman armor, it was something of a waist belt used to kind of hold the rest of the uniform together and to hold certain other parts of the armor in place. It's not an offensive weapon, but rather it is something used for protection. And in the same way, truth. Truth is the foundation of our faith and really holds all other things together. Truth, or doctrine, really is what teaches us the fundamentals of Christian living and spiritual life. Without truth, we can't even really get started. Jesus said you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
Truth is something of a foundation for us, and so Paul begins with truth. Get yourself ready, buckle up with truth. We know that Satan is a liar, and so he desires to deceive us and and steal away truth. He uses false doctrine. We've seen that even in our own midst. I've seen some of our brethren that have been picked off by false doctrine. They get following down a rabbit trail that leads them to a a place of bondage, a doctrine of works, or something that takes them away from the truth, the simplicity of the gospel in Jesus Christ. There are false doctrines. Now, some of you know them. If I were to say, you know, Jehovah's Witness, oh yeah, that's on all of our radar. We know what that is, and, and we know that that's not what we believe. But some doctrines are subtle. Some doctrines kind of creep in. And those are the ones that we need to guard against, and it is only truth that will protect you from these subtle lies of the enemy. Remember when Satan was in the garden and he came to Eve, he tried to get her to doubt God's word. Because if he could get her to doubt God's word, did God really say? Because if you can challenge the word of God, then you basically undermine the foundation of truth that we have and hold to. And so God's word is attacked because in so doing, truth can be stolen away. And it's unfortunate, but some doubt God's word and some end up believing a lie. And it's unfortunate, to be honest, guys, even in our Christian midst, there are men who I really wonder if they believe God's word. They begin to believe a lie. Thoughts like this begin to creep into their mind. You don't have to stay married to this person. Listen, God wants you to be happy. You should just end this and move on. And so this thought comes in, and it's a lie. It's a lie from Satan. And only truth can protect you from that, the truth of God's word. God hates divorce. God says, stay married to the wife of your youth. What God has joined, let no man separate. This is an example, but you understand how truth begins to kind of be undermined in our hearts and minds, and we begin to doubt And we become very vulnerable. Paul says, listen, put on truth. A couple of other verses I'll share with you here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. The Apostle Paul, he's speaking of a coming Antichrist. He's speaking of a time when truth will be lost. And he says, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Why do they perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie and that they they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Gird your waist with truth, men. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul told his disciple Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You need to be diligent in your Bible study. You need to be diligent in coming to know doctrine. Doctrine simply means teaching. And sometimes we imagine that as kind of a religious, you know, theology and 
you know, that's not for me. I'm just a man of the word. But listen, those, some of those theologies, some of those doctrines are fundamental and foundational. We need, as Timothy was encouraged, to be a workman not ashamed. Get into the word. Put truth in your heart. Learn it. Study it. You should want to know it so that you cannot be deceived, so that a delusion would not, you would not be vulnerable to this. Gird up your loins with truth. Secondly, second part of verse 14, it says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteous, uh, breastplate, of course, this is frontal protection primarily from the neck down to the thighs, and it protects, of course, all the vital organs, a very important piece of the armor. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we're talking about righteousness as our breastplate. In, in the verse of Corinthians, it said, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The breastplate of righteousness. I'm not interested in my own righteousness. I don't want to be looking to put on my righteousness. I want to be putting on the breastplate of his righteousness. My righteousness is worthless. My righteousness won't protect me from anything. I need the righteousness that has been given to me by Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul said, listen, he became sin that you might become righteous. But God wants us to put that on, just like a piece of armor. And you say, well, you know, once it's been given to us, don't we just have it? Don't we just possess it? Yes, we do. But here's what happens. The enemy comes in to try and convince you otherwise. You're not righteous. Look at you. So what happened yesterday? Yeah, righteous. You're right. You call yourself righteous. Well, we're not righteous in our own strength. We fall short. We miss the mark. But we need to put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. A couple things here. And again, a little technical, but I think it's worth talking about. There is something in the Bible called imputed righteousness. And this that word impute is actually a banking term. It means to be credited into your account. So the work of salvation is not just kind of cleaning the slate on debt. Okay, You, you were indebted because you were a sinner. God not only relieved you from the debt of your sins, He also credited something into your account. He didn't just bring your balance to zero. He also credited, imputed. It's a banking idea. He has deposited something into your account. It's called righteousness. He has filled you up to write with righteousness. It's the righteousness that comes from God. And this is this is like this protects your spiritual life when you know that, when this is something you really embrace and believe. It frees you, it, it, it strengthens you. You're not vulnerable to those condemnation thoughts. You're not vulnerable to those ideas that, you know, somehow God, He loves you today and then tomorrow He doesn't. He loves you, He loves you not. He loves you, He loves you not. No, I stand before Him in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not on my own merit, but through faith in what He has done for me. This is imputed. Now the Bible does teach also the idea of an imparted righteousness. And this is a righteousness that you begin to grow in. You become more and more like Jesus over time in your Christian journey. And certainly that's a reality too. I'd like to think that I am growing in the Lord. I'd like to think that you are. I'm I'm sure if you look back on who you were maybe five years ago, I hope you can say this, wow, God has 
worked in my life. I am walking closer to Him. There is a greater uh, evidence of Jesus Christ in my heart and life. This is a maturing. This is a, a learning to walk in the righteousness that God has already given to us concerning our standing before Him. So imparted righteousness is something you grow in, but the imputed righteous is something that you have because He has already given it to you. It's not something you can do to earn. It's not something you can do to improve. Again, your standing before God is justified. And yet your state in God is growing and maturing and changing. So don't confuse the two. Because you're not perfect yet. (laughs) I can't really count on God yet. I'm not as good as I need to be before I can really have confidence that God will be on my side. This is what Paul said. Look. Brethren, I don't claim to have arrived. This is the Apostle Paul. I don't claim to have obtained. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I'm pressing on toward the, call of the, toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul knew that he was righteous, even though he himself was not completely transformed into the image of Christ. But he was pressing for that, and he was moving toward that. And it's this imputed righteousness that sets you free to now walk in the imparted righteousness, to begin to grow to begin to mature. I've got another verse here. It just kind of summarizes a little bit of what I've been saying. It's out of Romans chapter 4. Paul is talking about this whole idea of the righteousness that comes through faith. And he says of Abraham, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Accounted. Get the idea of that banking term. Abraham believed and it was accounted to him, credited into his account, righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed, there's that word, to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. We are justified. You can know that you've been justified because Jesus rose If it wasn't enough, if Christ's payment at the cross had been insufficient, inadequate, there'd be no resurrection. But the resurrection proves that Christ accomplished what he set out out to do in atoning for sin. And that declares you justified. Justified is simply that, that, that act that causes you to be righteous before God. And so it's a beautiful picture of what God has done for us. Remember Satan, the accuser, guys, he will try to condemn you. He will try to uh, rob you of this truth. He will do anything he can to try to get you into an idea of having to earn your righteousness before God. Because if he can get you on that treadmill, you'll never get off. Because you'll never make it. You'll never be good enough. You'll feel condemned and more condemned and more condemned. And what often happens is you give up. I can't do it. Christianity is too hard. I can't do it. Because you had the wrong idea. Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Stand in what he has given you. It will act as a protection over all the vital organs of your spiritual life. We must have Christ's righteousness if we're going to have any hope in God. And he gives it freely by grace as we trust in Him and His work at the cross. The shoes of peace, look with me, verse 15, back in our text. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. 
Well, the Romans had very special kind of shoe, sandal type equipment that gave them mobility to travel. You know, they conquered so much of the most of the known world. These guys were on the move. They were moving, they were traveling, and it also gave them stability to stand and fight those battles. And so the gospel, the gospel of peace, we are to be ready to carry it with us as well. We are to be mobile. We are to be ready to go, ready to fight. You know, when you're getting ready to do something, you put your shoes on. Uh, the junior high had a uh, basketball tournament here recently, a couple Saturdays ago. And, you know, I'd heard about the junior high boys were going to get together for a basketball tournament. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to go check it out, see what's going on over there. And I put my shorts and shirt on, and I thought, what shoes should I wear? Hmm. I put my basketball shoes on, <laughs> just in case some of the brethren wanted to show their skills. And we had a good time, as luck would have it. We got into a game, didn't we, Raphael? <laughs> so we had a nice time. But, you know, I knew right away, you know, I'm going to need, if I'm going to be going to do this, I'm, I better not just put on my, you know, my, my deck shoes or, you know, sandals. I, I need basketball shoes for where I'm going. And this is the idea, you know, put on your, put the gospel on your feet. Be ready to go with the gospel. Peter said, always be ready to give an account. Always be ready to defend the faith that you believe in. Is the gospel right on your lips? Are you ready to share and lead someone to Christ? Are you ready to do battle in, for the kingdom? Because this is what God is interested in. God is interested in the souls of men. And the way God works is through the lives of men to redeem the souls of men. You got saved because somebody shared the gospel. And others get saved as we are ready to share the gospel. It's a state of... He said, you notice the language that he uses there, the, the preparation. Be ready. It's an, it's an idea of readiness. You put your shoes on. You don't get caught, you know, the enemy's on you. Oh, just a minute, i got to get my shoes on. You're ready to go. And it's the gospel of peace. We have peace with God because of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's an important principle to remember, guys. The gospel is good news. You're at peace with God. God's not mad at anybody here tonight. If you know Jesus, you have a good, you're in good standing with Him. He calls you friends. He, he's not angry. He loves you. You have close fellowship with Him. The gospel of peace, Romans 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Guys, we have very sure footing as we stand in the gospel. We are standing in the peace of relationship with him and we are ready to take it to the world as God would send us. And listen, God does send us. Romans ten fourteen. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How is someone going to know God if they haven't believed in him? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Put the gospel of feet on like shoes. Be ready to go 
and be ready to take them on the mountains that God would send you. Number four in verse 16 in our text, the shield of faith. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. The shield, the Roman shield was a two foot by four foot wood, leather, metal, almost a portable, movable wall, if you would, to stand behind for protection from arrows. You've probably seen some of those war movies where the shields, they, the men can stand close together and almost create a, like a shell of protection with their shields. The shield of faith. And our shield is faith. Faith is that complete reliance upon God and the trusting in His promises. Notice that he says you'll need to be able to extinguish the fiery darts of the wicked one. Guys, the fiery darts are going to come. The the shield doesn't stop the darts from coming. The shield just allows you to endure them. What are some of the fiery darts that the enemy uses? We've talked about some of this before, and it's part of our whole study on his strategy. But quite often he'll bring thoughts. Quite often he'll bring temptations, fears, anxieties, worries, evil thoughts, selfish thoughts, lustful thoughts, images, these are darts, fiery darts, and they carry that, that flame that if you don't extinguish them quickly, now that, that what was a small flame will turn into a raging fire. Don't wait until your whole shield is on fire to extinguish the dart. That shield is to catch and extinguish immediately. You don't want these fiery darts to take root, but rather by faith you want to extinguish them. As Warren Wearsby said, we cannot stop Satan from throwing darts, but we can stop them from starting a fire, quench them quickly. Faith. Believing God at His Word. Believing that He is on your side. Believing that He is faithful. Believing in His promises. Now faith, Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the, evi- excuse me, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.6, But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. You're going to be challenged in your Christian walk to believe the promises of God. You're going to be challenged. Do I really believe it? Is it really true? Am I really going to trust Him? Am I really going to do it His way when everything I want is to do my own way? Am I really going to stick this out? Am I really going to tolerate this? Am I really going to hang in there? Am I really going to believe that God's Word is true in this circumstance, in this situation? Because the enemy is going to do everything he can to try and get you to disbelieve the promises of God, undermine your faith, weaken it, cause doubt, fear. Fear is the opposite of faith and confidence. And the enemy works very hard and diligently, and those fiery darts come on a regular basis. And it is the shield of faith that God has given to extinguish them. Number five, the helmet of salvation. We see that in the first part of verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation. Of course, the helmet, that which protected the very head of the soldier, 
First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8, Paul using kind of the same language that we see here in Ephesians, but he adds a little something else. He says, as a helmet, the hope of salvation. It gives us a little insight in, into what he's probably in trying to communicate to us about salvation. Salvation brings the idea of a future hope. Salvation, you've been saved. Saved from what? Well, I've been saved from judgment upon my sin. I've been saved from having to give an account to God for my sinfulness. That's what I've been saved from. I've been saved from hell. I've been saved from judgment. I've been saved from damnation. God has issue with sinners. (laughs) And I've been saved from that. Aren't you glad? So Paul says, put on the helmet of salvation. Rejoice in the hope that God has for you something better than judgment. God has not called us to, to wrath or to judgment, but to love and to peace and to eternal life. And this becomes something of a, of a protection against the enemy who would like to rob you of your hope. He attacks faith. He attacks hope. He wants to, he wants to get rid of your hope. He would like you to believe that your life is over. And how can you be sure about eternal life? He wants you to to give up on hope, but salvation brings the very essence of hope. It's a focus on what God has done for us in Christ. It's It's a focus on Jesus Christ's return, a future kingdom, an eternal heaven, salvation, saved from wrath and judgment, not only in this life, but for all eternity. Hope is used to fight against discouragement and despair. Now you know that's a weapon of the enemy. Discouragement and despair. I know that that's something even my own life personally, that's, what, that's often what I wrestle with, discouragement. And discouragement, if it goes on too long, it can morph itself and grow into despair. And you just become almost ready to give up. What difference does it make? Who cares? Discouragement leads to bad choices. Discouragement can lead you even to rebellion. It's too hard. It didn't work for me. I've heard all these things. I've said some of them. What difference does it make? I'll just go back to my old way or I'll just fall into this, this trap. You need the helmet of salvation, that hope that you have in Jesus, the assurance of eternal life, the assurance that he has a future and a hope for you, that he has saved you for purpose. You're his. You belong to him. It's not. You shouldn't be discouraged to despair. Now, there are moments when discouragement, you read the Psalms, you read those psalmists, some of them went through deep discouragement. But as you read through, they also came out. They strengthened themselves in the Lord. And that's our, and I believe that's part of re, uh, reminding ourselves of the joy of our salvation. Put it on like a helmet. Finally, verse six, or excuse me, the sixth point, verse seventeen: the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Paul gives us real clear instruction here: the sword of the spirit is the word. Now, this is the this is this is an offensive weapon. Most of what we've read so far is to protect and defend, but the sword is to strike. 
Hebrews 4 and verse 12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You'll remember Jesus when he defeated Satan in his wilderness temptation. What did he use to defeat the enemy? The word of God. It is written. It is written. It is written. He used it like a master swordsman, and Satan left him. He, he completely defeated each and every temptation. How are you going to be able to use the sword? Well, first of all, how would you use the sword if you don't own a sword? You better get a sword. Second of all, you better learn how to use it. Um, my dad used to collect antiques. He's, he still does. I mean, he's not collecting. He's got a collection. He's got enough. Uh, and he used to kind of display them in, in his office and different things. And he used to have this old, looked like a you know Spaniard sword or something. And uh, it was really cool. It had kind of a handle on it, you know. And as a kid, I used to go in there and pick it up, you know. And until I kind of hit myself with it a couple times, like, man, that's kind of, you know, I didn't know how to use it. It was kind of heavier than I thought. And, you know, swords take some practice, as I discovered. It's better just as a display, as an antique in Dad's office, not something I should be wielding around. And so the idea here is to become skillful with the Word of God. You're going to have to know it, but not just you know, not just knowledge of it, but as Paul told Timothy, learn how to accurately divide the Word of Truth. And you'll use it on the offense. You'll use it, of course, to push back the enemy from him attacking your life, just as Jesus did. It is written one-on-one. But I think of this also in the lives of others where Satan is looking to gain advantage. When Satan is moving in on a loved one, when Satan is bringing someone that you know, a friend, into discouragement, into depression, what, what's the best way to help that individual? The Word of God. You bring the Scripture to their life. You bring the Word of God. You bring a promise. You bring a psalm. You bring a word. Bring that which can give life and that which can set the enemy to flee. I don't say this in a boastful way because I'll, I, will, I will say that I have so much to grow in this area just personally. But oftentimes when I'm praying with people, they'll share what's going on in their life, what's going on in their heart. Verses are coming to my mind. We're going to pray, but I want to give you this verse first. That reminds me of a scripture, and it's a scripture that fits their circumstance and brings a word of hope, something very specific to what they're going through. And I believe that's what God wants us to be. If we're going to be soldiers, we need to be weaponized with the Word of God. We need to be students of it. We need to know and have the Word of God ready and at the ready to use in our own defense and to use in the lives of those where Satan is looking to take advantage. We'll be back here to Ephesians, but hold your place there and just turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's the longest chapter in the longest book of the Bible. Psalm 119. In total, it's 176 verses. We will not be reading all of that tonight. 
But I want to encourage you to read this psalm. Because what you will find in this psalm is the psalmist is speaking almost exclusively about the Word of God. The commandments, the precepts, the Word of God. And he goes on for 176 verses talking about how precious the Word of God is to him. Now this, is, this is what I call being readied with the sword. This is a man who, who knew that the, that the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, was in fact the Word. Just look at a few verses. We'll just read a, a few uh, verses here and you'll get the idea. Blessed are, I mean, Psalm 119, verse 1, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in His ways. You have commanded us to keep Your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep Your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all Your commandments. I will praise You with uprightness of heart when I learn Your righteous judgments. I will keep Your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. I love this verse, verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. That's just 16 verses of 176 verse chapter. I encourage you to read it, to meditate it, to, to let it soak into your spirit. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Back with me to Ephesians. We'll close here tonight with what we discover in Warren Wiersbe's book, how he analyzes the last few verses, specifically verse 18 of our text. And he identifies this, this exhortation to prayer as the way in which you put on the armor. In other words, put on the armor through prayer. These things are actually put on as you pray and spend time in the presence of the Lord. And he identifies some different aspects of prayer here, all identified in this one verse. Look with me. Let's read it again, and we'll look at the four uh, types or aspects of prayer mentioned here. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication, for all the saints. First of all, we see there praying always. Praying always. This is a preserving prayer. It's an attitude that is always in prayer and trust. In other words, an open line between you and heaven. It doesn't mean that you're always mumbling something under your breath and just you know going through the motions of praying words, but, but there is a, a, an attitude in your heart that is always in communion with Him. And that you are constantly in prayer, praying always. I like what Wearsby says here. It is not enough to mumble a few pious words at the beginning of the day. This kind of praying will never defeat Satan. Guys, we've got to pray. 
you got to call out on God. You got to humble yourself and go before Him. You got to spend time with Him. You got to develop a relationship that is constant and regular and continuous. Preserving prayer, praying always. Also, we see here a balanced prayer. He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication. He speaks of all, all prayer, identifying that there are different types of prayer. We know this to be true. Worship is a form of prayer. Prayer is merely talking, communicating to God. So certainly worship is part of our prayer life. Confession of sin, this is a part of our prayer life. Supplication, that's the actual asking God of those things that we need. Thanksgiving, giving Him thanks for His goodness, His faithfulness. All of this is part of your prayer life. We often think of prayer as the supplication part, asking God for what we need, and that is certainly part of it. But that's not the only kind of communication that should be going on between you and the Lord. There should be worship. Time when you're just expressing your love. Times when you're just, you know, go to the Psalms and and read out some of those extolling Psalms of the Lord. Exalt the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Some of those psalms, just giving worship and praise to God. That's part of your prayer life. Confession of sin. It should be a regular part of our life. There, you know, I want to be, I don't want a long list of unconfessed sin in my life. I don't want to go weeks at a time. I, something's going on in my heart, in my mind, in my thought life. Lord, I want to get it right, right now, Lord. Forgive me. That attitude is wrong. That is selfish. Forgive me, Lord. And that constant communication and a quick confession, receiving that forgiveness, that's part of a balanced prayer life. All prayer. We also see here in verse 18, a Spirit-empowered prayer. He says, in the Spirit. The Spirit will lead us what to pray, and the Spirit will empower us to continue to pray. You need the Holy Spirit even to help your prayer life. I like the way Chuck Smith talks of prayer. He talks of a cycle of prayer. He said prayer really begins with God. God wants to do something. God has something in his heart that he desires to accomplish, and then he stirs his saints. What God wants to do, he puts in the heart of his prayer, praying saints. And then by the Holy Spirit, they're, impe- they're, they're compelled to pray and ask God to do what He has already put in, the, in their heart that He desires to do. And it cycles back to God. I certainly don't want to be asking God to do something that He doesn't want to do. <laughs> I don't want to be praying for something outside of His will. I want my prayers to be in the will of God. So God, burden my heart. What do you want to do in my life, in my family, in my workplace, in this church, in this community, in our generation? Lord, what should I be praying for? I want to be praying in line with you. Let thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. I want to be praying down heaven into our, into our lives. And this, is, this can only be done by, by spirit-empowered prayer. We saw that on Sunday, right? My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You're not just going to automatically know what God wants to do. You're going to need the Holy Spirit and that relationship and that, that, that the Holy Spirit actually guiding you in prayer. You'll need His help to know what to pray. And guys, we need His help to continue in prayer because 
you know what, we, we have a tendency to give up. We have a tendency to quit. I tried. I prayed. It didn't happen. It didn't work. I quit. It's kind of our prayer life, right? I prayed already about that. It didn't happen. It must not be God. Sometimes you have to labor in prayer. You have to tarry in prayer. And not that God needs to be kind of arm wrestled into it. Not that God has to be talked into it. But I just believe that there are there is a part of our relationship with God where God actually looks to draw out faith. And he'll put you in a setting where you have to you have to labor. You've got to work for it. You know, just like a father, you know, if if your if your son really wants that car or if he really wants that guitar, <laughs> Let him work for it. Let him contribute to the process. Don't just go out and buy it for him. Let him him invest his own heart and his own desire there. And I think God works with that some way. God is trying to get us vested into his work. Get on your knees and pray. Call on the Lord. It's not changing. Well, pray more. You want God in your homes? You want God in your marriage? You want God in your family? You want God in this church? We have to pray. And we need the Holy Spirit not only to tell us what to pray, but to help us labor in prayer. God, give me the grace not to quit, not to give up, but to tarry in prayer and to continue to pursue you in prayer. Finally, the fourth type, the fourth element here of prayer that Wearsby identifies is watchful prayer. He says, being watchful, right? You see there in the last part of verse 18, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. This is, you know, this is prayer with purpose. This is prayer while I'm paying attention. I'm on watch. I'm alert. I'm engaged in the battle. I'm proactive in my prayer. I'm not just waiting for the crisis. Oh, time to pray. (laughs) You know? It was time to pray before the crisis arrived. So this watchful, this alertness, this readiness—you don't, you know—you don't catch a man that's not prayed up because he's always prayed up. I'm not talking about myself, unfortunately, but that's what I desire. I want to be prayed up. I don't know what crisis awaits me tomorrow, nor do you. I don't know what the battles will look like this year. Six months from now, after the election, what's going to go on in our country? I don't know. But I don't want to wait to find out to start praying. I want to be watchful now in prayer. Don't you feel like something's going on? Don't you feel like there is a spiritual darkness moving in on our land? Moving into our government and our leadership and the minds of people are becoming darkened by the lies and the deceits of the enemy? Don't you feel darkness pressing its advantage on us? Put on the armor. Step up to the battle. And let's pray. Let's watch and pray. Let's be alert. Let's be engaged. Let's pray in a way that is, uh, I don't know, aggressive, ambitious. I don't want to just kind of, well... You know, it's all going to end anyway. Jesus, come quickly. You know, I'm just going to, me and mine will be okay. Hold on, guys. Jesus will come soon. Oh, you know, we're, we're here to, to be a part of what God wants to do in this age. 
God's not finished. Our nation is not lost. Our culture is not lost. I don't know. Things may get worse. Judgment may come. But until it comes, until Jesus Christ returns, He still believes there are souls for winning. Because until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, He doesn't return. So, we had a lot of people last night getting saved at the play. I thought maybe, maybe that would be the last one. But it wasn't. There's more work to do, and God wants us to be about it. So, you know, I like this this book, guys. Satan is certainly looking to do battle against us, and he he wages rages against us. But we are not ill-equipped. God has given us everything that we need pertaining to life and to godliness. We are victors in Christ, and He has equipped us uh, with all that's needed for the battle. Let's pray, Father. We thank you for this classic passage on. The, ar- the full armor of God. It gives us great insight into how the enemy looks to attack, and it also gives us insight into how to defend and deflect and defeat him. And I pray for us as men, I pray for my own heart and life, God, and I pray for these men with me, that we would stand up in our generation, that we would step up to the battle. The battle wages and rages whether we are checked in or checked out. But Lord, you've called us, and you've called us for this very purpose. Help us to be men, men of God, in a time when men of God are desperately needed. Help us to set down the distractions of our own way, the sins and the lusts and the, and the issues of our, of our life that so derail us and distract us and get us away from the battle and, and Lord, get us all turned around. And, and Lord, get us, get us equipped. We want to put on these things tonight and be readied for those things you've called us to do as men and as a church. We thank you for this time. We ask that you would continue to speak to our hearts and encourage us through these words and teaching and even as we discuss here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.